0: How did the daughter of a Navy officer with a degree in zoology end up in the highest ranks of the CIA? What is it like briefing five different presidents of the United States on the most pressing national security challenges? The Honorable Susan Gordon, former Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence answers these questions and more. I'm your host, Hadil Ali. Welcome to Driving Impact.
1: Driving Impact, an exclusive insight into the personal backgrounds and careers of trailblazers on the front lines of policy.
0: Sue, welcome to CSIS. What a pleasure to have you here. Oh, I'm I'm delighted. One of my favorite organizations, and the chance to talk to you is a dream come true. Thank you. You know, uh, Sue, so I was telling a colleague of mine that I was getting the chance to interview you and she said, Sue just drops gems. every time you talk to her. So really excited to hear uh, what you have to say about your your journey and your incredible career.
1: Well, thanks.
0: I'll give you my best. Awesome. Sue, let's go back. When you were 10 years old, Mm -hmm. what were your aspirations? What did you want to be when you grew up as a 10-year-old?
1: I don't recall being anything other than happy. You know, I was a a Navy kid. And back in the day, we moved every year and a half. Mm. For me, I loved it. It was like a new set of people mm. I got to know. I was, I love sports. And back then, there weren't a lot of organized sports, but man, you could always go outside and play. And so I I, I just mostly remember being happy and mm-hmm. lucky and, and all those things. It was probably in ninth grade where I had a science teacher that just was amazing, and I think so many people have that same story, right? Mm-hmm. Judy Parsons, if you're still out there, Judy, <laughs> thank you. Um, and and she made me want to be a scientist, mm-hmm. and actually, she's the one that made me think that marine biology was the thing to do. So, um, I, I, I think I had that, but mostly I was just living my best life and doing whatever kind of came across, enjoying moving around.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I am interested. Uh, yeah, mostly I just remember being happy and busy. Yeah. yeah, do you remember what was your kind of favorite place growing up? Oh, I look. Well, uh, I know it's not fair. It's a big favorite. No, 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 no,
1: no. <laughs> I I think it was uh, California. Hmm. Uh, when was I there? Uh, between fifth to seventh grade. Hmm. And I think what I loved about it not only was it Southern California, and come on, every, every day is a great day, um, but but that's when i met a girl um on the playground and she was playing four square and i decided i'd play four square and she was the best athlete of boys and girls and and so she was kind of like the thing and then i jumped in and played and then we just became fast Mm. friends she decided that i wasn't susie anymore i was sue so (laughs) kathy vance is the one that gave me sue and we just We played sports together. We rode our bikes everywhere. And so I think I had the fondest memories of that time in California because it was all outside and it was mm. different and it was free and it wasn't the East
0: Coast. It was awesome. Yeah. I'm biased as well. I was born in California. So Oh, there you go. Uh, so great place. Absolutely. Sue, so you mentioned growing up in a military household. Mm-hmm. What was that like, the values that you grew up with and your siblings? So I think the first thing, if you are
1: – In my generation, if you're in the military, a military family, it's about family. You know, Mm -hmm. you're moving a lot, and I have an older brother, an older sister, and before you make friends, you know, you're a little unit. So Mm -hmm. family's super important. I think the values of responsibility, of doing something for the cause, of not complaining working hard being grateful all those things and
0: but but mostly doing your best and doing something for the yeah. cause and you carried those values with you throughout your journey and career oh I
1: I I tell people all the time we are who we begin as mm-hmm. and so being the third kid as a naval officer has a, absolutely everything to do with who I am I and it from my first day when I didn't negotiate over my salary because, I don't know, I figured promoting would take care of itself, it didn't matter
0: what I got on the first day to the last day I was there. So absolutely carried me through. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you said in ninth grade, um, you were thinking about being a a scientist and you go on to attend Duke University. Um, What did you study there? Um, I went to
1: study marine biology. They had a marine science lab on the east coast Mm -hmm. and there weren't many marine biology programs and they were at lesser schools and I wanted like the full college experience Mm -hmm. and if I turned out not to be a marine biologist, I wanted a degree I could use. Um, And so I went to Duke really to do that, but then I ended up playing basketball, I never had my springs free, I never did that. So I did the second best thing to marine biology, I got a degree in zoology and oh. specialized in biomechanics, which is how they, how living systems work, and functional morphology, how structure relates to function. So it's fun to say I'm a <laughs> zoology major, and I was like, what? <laughs> but truthfully, it's really the engineering of living systems that I did.
0: When you told people this throughout your career <laughs> that you had a degree in zoology, were they surprised? Or? Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah they you don't typically see this.
1: They right? don't, and and it it isn't common. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't immediately translate. And people today, I think, have a harder, harder time than I did mm-hmm. having a non-expected background mm-hmm. and still getting in. I mean which one of the things I loved about the
0: CIA was they cared more about performance than pedigree. Yeah. It's embracing non-traditional mm-hmm. backgrounds, right? Uh, that not everyone has to have a traditional path. Not everyone has to study political science or international right. affairs right. to be welcomed in the space and have their contributions be valued. Yeah. yeah. So not only you study and you have, you get a degree uh, in zoology at Duke, too, but you also play basketball. I, I mean, what was that like playing basketball at Duke? And I know you're representing here with the with the Carolina Blue, but I know. what was that
1: like? Um, so I was... I, if I had one overwhelming sense of my whole life, including to this day. I'm just super lucky. I'm just super lucky. So I got to play basketball at Duke in the most fascinating four years, I think, in women's athletics, where when I started playing, it was all the women who just loved playing sports. Mm -hmm. And by the time my four years ended, everyone was on on scholarship Mm -hmm. except me and the other seniors. So I got to see us go from kind of like high school plus... Mm -hmm to really the same game that they play now. And so getting to my last year getting Nike shoes that said Duke on the back, but my sophomore year having to paint Cameron Indoor Stadium to get money for travel, mm. I got to see that whole. Evolution. I know, right? And see that whole arc and know what it took to get there. I think that's why you have so many women of my generation who are sometimes judgy about the women of this generation mm. who and and it's okay, mm. who seem to
0: not remember what it was like to not have it. Mm-hmm. I think it's that balance right yeah. Sue between it's okay to want more. Right, totally. And it's good and I love it.
1: I mm-hmm. loved mm-hmm. watching this year's mm-hmm. NCAA. Mm-hmm. And and they're so brash and they're woofing at each other and I love it. And it's nothing that that was the game when I have and so kind of watching the two of those I I don't know it was a great time Mm -hmm. that other side of also acknowledging how far how far we've come and how amazing women are and how bold they are and how prepossessed they are I love walking around college campuses looking at women athletes just super proud of their physiques and their
0: I it's it's fun you got to be also the captain, uh, I believe, the only three-year captain uh, in the team's history. And what sort of lessons did you take away uh, about leadership during that time? So I think sports, for me, if,
1: if my foundation is my family and the lessons mm-hmm. learned there, probably who I am as a leader is most determined by athletic participation. I, I love sports. They teach you to be able to deal with conflict um, really productively. It teaches you how to be depended on and how to depend on others and think about that, to allow your whole fate to be in someone else's hands Mm -hmm. and to understand that their whole fate is in yours. I think that does things. It teaches you how to commit to the point of failure um, because if you don't do that, you'll never improve. And we see this all the time in the workplace People save something so they don't look bad or they don't make a mistake. You know, I think athletics teaches you if you really want to find out, you have to commit to the point of failure. And then what isn't often talked about, I mean, obviously I'm a cool kid because I was the three-year captain of Duke. I never started a game except the senior game. I, in fact, only earned a letter two of the years. So I am a never-starter who was a three-year captain, and how do you explain that? You can kind of get it my senior year, you know, the happy hard worker. (laughs) What do you do about a sophomore that doesn't? And I think through my teammates, what I learned is that value and role aren't the same.
0: Mm.
1: Value and role are not the same. Right? So I had a role. And then I think the last thing, um, I think that's where I learned that outcome was more important Focusing on outcome, ensuring that was more important
0: than getting what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more so about the the point about sports. I played sports growing up. That was something that was very important to to my parents because of the life lessons. I ended up you know, playing uh, tennis in college. Oh, where? But it, um, small small school, dreary, um, in the Midwest. Sure. Um, and. It really was about leadership and it being the, the captain as well. It's about the lessons that you learn, navigating, uh, talking to your, to your teammates. It's also very much about mental toughness. How do you navigate winning, but also losing, right? And a lot of these themes come up in life, in Indeed. relationships, uh, in the workplace, right? In one week, my sophomore year, we were one in 19.
1: It was the first year... We had scholarship players the first year we were playing really big schools and we went 1-19 and in one week we lost by 50 to Clemson, 70 to Maryland, and 82 mm-hmm. to North Carolina State. You go through that and then by your senior year you've got a winning team. It tells you, you what you have now is not what you
0: have mm-hmm. to have. right? Yeah, so many lessons. It takes so much strength and resilience mm-hmm. and how do you bounce back from that mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the role of the, the team, the captain, but the coach. Um, as well, and I think about that—the coach or the manager, right—in a workplace situation right. or a leader, right—and how they they drive yeah. the the team. So I will never forget when I first emailed you to tell you about the this this show, Driving Impact. You told me that you loved the title so much, right? Because you said, in fact, leadership isn't about what we are or what we say but it's about what we make happen Mm -hmm. right and you see that through sports but also throughout your whole career what you made happen constantly
1: yeah I think uh, somewhere along the way in my career I became the person you hired if you wanted something done Mm. Um, why do you think that's the case uh, I think I um, predisposed to to see the future always and want to be relevant I just think I, I I think I'm designed that way that's the way I think of it um, I think also um, because I always believed that I was supposed to do the job I was asked and I never protected myself mm. in the course of doing that and so if you can do that if you if you can see the future then you understand not only the job you're doing but the job you're doing mm. If you're fearless about it, you know you, might, you believe you're supposed to. Your boss said do this, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm supposed to do that. And so when you get obstacles, you just overcome them. Uh, and then if you love leading people, it's here's the coolest thing about leadership that I've discovered. If you set a point, your people will never let you down
0: ever so I don't know I yeah. I mean it goes back also to, to what you're saying about family values because you talked about responsibility yep. I mean leadership is about responsibility is. that support mentorship for uh, for people that are not only working for you but working with you yeah right on the for, long side for sure I I think that's a, a great point I didn't
1: say it nearly that well and I'll probably steal the <laughs> way you did uh, going forward and I'll probably give you credit for like six weeks or something <laughs> like that that's, um, that's good enough for I me. think you, I think you have to be <laughs> responsible to your people I think you have to be responsible to your mission, right? Not not for, that's an entirely different emotion than being responsible to, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing I never believed is that, especially working in the government, we had different jobs, but we weren't fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. So they were not there to support me. They were not there to, to make sure things went well for me.
0: I actually thought my job was to lead them. Yeah. So how did you end up in the CIA? Did you find them? Did they find you? I mean, how did that all happen? <laughs> um, well, so I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. We have discovered that Sue
1: is not one of the people that plans out her career. It's kind of like my whole career story. There I was walking down the road when, you know, someone stopped me and said, hey, would you like to? And I say yes. So I thought I was going to go get my Ph.D. in biomechanics. I mm-hmm. love science. I love the mystery of life. Um, But I also thought I might want to go to law school because I love arguing. Like, I want to say, there, are rings around you, logically. And I thought, well, that's just too big a range to choose one, so why don't you go get a job? Uh, I think because my dad was in the Navy, um, public service Mm -hmm. kind of came about. And then it turned out the year I joined, Stan Turner was the director of the CIA, and my dad had worked with him in 1966, so I knew of him. And then CIA was recruiting me on campus, and so I thought, well, they were at Duke. Yeah, what Duke. year was that? Seventy-nine, summer of seventy-nine. And what was your first job? Uh, my first job was supposed to be uh, doing analysis of Soviet biological warfare. So that makes sense right i have a degree in zoology (laughs) i do critters that's kind of related Mm -hmm. but it was 1980 and kind of like now uh we were downsizing and it was a time of change so i got there and i was shiny i was 21 years old i mean old now but man i i look 12. i look at my eod picture it's like oh my god they let her (laughs) and i i came in they said bad news you don't have a job we'll give you 30 days to find new work or you, you won't have work here, so I wandered around the building and talked to people. I discovered then that I would not be good at human recruitment, at least at that age, because I blush and giggle when I lie, <laughs> and I didn't fundamentally understand that it's not about convincing people to do what you wouldn't do. It's actually giving them the opportunity to achieve their ends. Um, so uh, time was running short, and in the Office of Scientific and Weapons Research, there was a job for a junior Soviet missile analyst. And I said, well, I can do that. Because really mechanical engineering is just applied zoology. Mm -hmm. And
0: um, so it worked out. So it worked out, out. out, yeah. You said that intelligence is never what people think. Mm -hmm. So what was that like in terms of what expectations you had entering the CIA? And then what actually (laughs) you ended up discovering? So the the CIA, uh, particularly then,
1: so mission driven such a big culture organization um that we are we're still on the back end of the cold war my first bosses were the people that were there when scientific analysis and collection was really formed so my first bosses were the wizards of langley so you feel it there you feel the importance of the mission um, there was nothing I was doing that was like what you see in movies, but you still had the feeling of responsibility for providing advantage. Uh, so so there was at that time a growing, what would be incredibly
0: rich history of technical analysis. Mm-hmm. And I got to be a, a part, part of, of it. Yeah. I imagine so at the time there weren't a lot of women <laughs> uh, working then uh, how was that like navigating that space um, as a woman? Were there even conversations about that topic at the time? It was so.
1: My office was about eight hundred, and I think we had maybe three professional women in the office of eight hundred. Three women of out about eight hundred. About eight hundred. Um I'll tell you what. The, there was one woman that was senior to me, and I was just in awe of her. She was she was hell on wheels. She was smart and driven, and and wonderful. So there weren't a lot. There weren't many that were in leadership. Um, and and there weren't really many in leadership who were like me, young, married, you know, with a, a family coming along the way. But you know what? I um, I didn't care. I can look back on it and realize that it was a difficult environment. I just wanted to be good. And if I could give one piece of advice to anybody, it's focus on being good, that organizations don't actually have souls. I wish they did. I wish they cared. No, I I wish they cared more. What they want is they want good work done. So every person they hire on the day they hire you, they want you to be good. And so I focused on being really good at my job. And Mm -hmm. to be good at your job is not just being good looking down at your work. It's looking at your work
0: and saying, okay, I understand what this is a part of. So I spend some time doing that. It's also taking that step back, right? The strategy piece, understanding the mission as well and how that work uh, contributes.
1: I think I didn't really notice the disproportionate male population Mm -hmm. until I got into more senior leadership, Mm -hmm. where you start seeing how decisions are being made Mm -hmm. that aren't just based on the work. But man, when you start, in a way, in 1980 and in the early 80s, I thought it was if you were going to be good, it was easier to be a woman because you were. there were so few mm. that if you were good, you were better. You were seen. Now, the downside is if you were bad, you were worse, which isn't tolerable. But, But for me, it was just focus on the hand. Plus, I think because I had brothers, because I played sports, there was a comfort that I had in a male culture that I certainly used. But again, over time you can't trust people's success Mm -hmm. to whether they fit in and so you have to keep working on the environment but but for me it it did okay
0: yeah and so as you said as sue as you became more senior and then you end up becoming the principal deputy director of national intelligence did you ever feel like an imposter being having studied uh, zoology (laughs) at duke being a woman i mean what was that like did you always feel like i deserve to be here or was it hard at times? I don't, I don't
1: think I ever had the time to think about whether I deserved to be there or not. And because I was so lucky that I had bosses that gave me hard jobs early and taught me how to feel the weight, that, that from the time I was 25, I was doing really big projects. Mm-hmm. And so in the culture of the CIA... Man, it's it's like I've described it as playing pickup basketball with guys. When you play pickup basketball with girls, we share the ball. We're about shared purpose. When you play pickup basketball with guys, if you don't do something with the ball, you're not going to get the ball again. The obverse of that is the people around you allow you to do something with the ball, and that was the CIA for me. So I think I was lucky enough to have big jobs early I was good enough to recognize I was supposed to do something with them. I think the most surprising thing that people would know is I spent a career doing jobs I didn't know how to do. Like every time I got a new job, I didn't know how to do it. So I came as a zoologist. I started doing analysis of Soviet spacecraft. And then I went and built U.S. spacecraft. And I didn't, that wasn't what I learned how to do. So
0: you have to learn how to do that. And,
1: and so what so, was
0: the, the, that transferable skill I mean what was what allowed you yeah. to be able to do these different jobs it you're was... not stuck with the
1: knowledge you have
0: mm-hmm. right so so back to go back
1: to the comments about being a Navy kid okay that's where you are you mm-hmm. better grow and because I did so many different jobs I didn't do one job in different places I did building jobs in lots of different places, but because I can't stand to not be good, I learned how to do those skills. And so how did you get to be the person that people hired to do things? Because they know that if you give me a job. But to your point of kind of imposter, every time I was asked to do a job, it's like, I don't know how to do that. But you felt like you could get there.
0: You-
1: yes, and um, <laughs> you bring what you had to every job. So, uh, especially as I started getting more senior and having more people, when I made the move from kind of technical analysis and collection discipline over to be the director of support at the CIA, no one on the support side of the house had any idea who I was. They knew kind of that I'd been hired to downsize them by 10%. And I knew I knew nothing about the craft and discipline mm. of support. So how do you take that job on? Do you think you can wait to lead? You can't. There are a lot of people who think you can. So how do you lead, even though you know you're not going to lead by telling these professionals their job? So what you do is you bring what you know how to do. And over time, I learned how to set a vision learn and learn the from them
0: too, inspire, and then trust them. Yeah, trust them. Right. Yeah. What was the most important lesson you learned about leadership throughout your career? Uh, probably
1: if they're not following, you're not leading. Yeah. And what I mean by that is we all have a leadership style we prefer. We have responsibilities as leaders. We all think that that everyone's like us. And so whatever our preferences are, are the ones that they have. And um, director of support job, again, was one where... Uh, on the literal scale, I am not on it. On the bear catcher to bear skinner scale, I am well beyond a bear catcher. And that's how I lead. Like, we're going we're gonna to go there. And someone will say, well, what's step one? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you need a step one? No, we're just going to go there. And the director of support, they didn't know what to do with me. They are such a wonderful culture of service. And they wanted to do what I said, but I wasn't. I wasn't being useful. And after about three months, I realized that they were disappointed because they felt that they could never please me. Mm. And so that was just a great day to say, no, 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 my leadership style has no import. Yeah, It's how do I lead them. That, so that's probably a, my best.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, as I think more about leadership, I think about the many times you briefed presidents, mm-hmm. right? You briefed uh, five out of the last six presidents I mean, what was that experience like? How did, again, those leadership lessons show up as you were you were doing that work? But again, the responsibility piece, I think back to it as well, right? The responsibility that what you're telling the president is going to make an impact on decisions that will be made. Um, so intelligence is like the, the best,
1: truest discipline. I say this as a career intelligence <laughs> officer. I'm sure there are other people that believe different things. But all you have to do is to see what is not what you prefer and to represent that truth as best you can until the decision maker hears it so that they can use it, right? And you don't have policy responsibility. You don't have others. And so in a way, even though every president is the same because they're different, Uh, President Obama, you'd go into briefing, he'd read your stuff, and you might not say a word, and then he'd... He might not even ask you questions? Mm. Oh. Right? Um, uh, President Reagan was like your grandfather, right? He was just, you know, he would tell you stories along the way. President Trump, it was was a romp. But you still have the job to do. You have to figure out how to represent your information in a way that they can hear. So I think it's a relatively easy transition for an intelligence Mm -hmm. officer, because all you're really trying to do is say, how do I get
0: it heard rather than uh, I have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about President uh, Trump. So you had a typed resignation letter, but also a handwritten resignation letter. Tell us more about what happened and why you chose to write these, these two letters. So it was it was a hard time for me. The President
1: decided that he was going to remove ask Dan Coates to leave. and And that was ok. Dan was a political appointee. By the way, he did a really wonderful job as a playing intelligence straight down the middle, which is really what you mostly want. Um, I was statutorily supposed to take that position, but the President decided he didn't want me to. And so, For me, unlike Dan, who was losing a job, I was losing a career. So that was a a reasonably hard time. Congress was trying to get me to not resign Mm -hmm. so that they could try and talk him into keeping me. Um, But the day came where it became apparent that he was not going to keep me on. And so back to my third kid of a naval officer. If you're a third kid of a naval officer and your boss who hired you says he no longer wants you, you give a cheery aye aye and you move along. So I write a resignation letter, but it was really for the intelligence community because it was one thing to lose Dan, but I will humbly say to lose me was a lot bigger. Like, oh my God, if Sue can't make it, who's gonna do it? So I wanted to write the resignation letter Mostly to tell them it would be okay mm-hmm. and to tell and the that's president. that's leadership. Yeah, right? You yeah. know, we yeah. we have who we are, and mm-hmm. in a crisis, it's who you are. Mm-hmm. But your responsibility is still to the mission and to the community. And so that letter was really to them. And I was going down, because I think he was going to go to Bedminster, and I didn't want to miss him because it felt like I'd be rude if I just dropped a letter. If I just so I I went down to the White House, and as I'm about to go down there, I'm like, "What if he's not there?" I don't want to just drop a typewritten letter off because that again feels disrespectful. Um, so I went back to my office and I dashed off this handwritten note. And really, what it was is to just say, "Mr. President, you don't have to do this. You know that I that I will step away, mm-hmm. but I'm doing so." Out of patriotism, not out of preference, but both were about who I am as a human, my responsibility to my community, and not wanting to burn down the house
0: on the way out the door. Do you feel like you did the right thing looking back?
1: Yeah, I think I did. I, I think I was true to myself, um, and I, I think the intelligence community—I as knew it would. It's the strength is in the women and men, and they do their job wonderfully. I, for me. Uh, I felt like I've left my mates in the foxhole without me. Uh, it's been hard to deal with that, especially for the next couple of years. It was hard. But I think I did the only thing that was available to me, and I think I did it in a manner that
0: did not bring discredit on the community. Yeah. So when you said I wasn't only, you know, losing a job, it was about a career mm-hmm. as well, right? I mean, how was it like navigating balancing a career and then a family Right? Because um, you were married throughout your, your career, and I think there was a time where you stopped working for for eight years, and you made that choice to raise, I mean, your children. And I think about the challenges of navigating making such a decision as a woman. Uh, I mean, how? How? <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> I don't. Uh, well, one. Let's be clear. Duke gave
1: me the three things that are the most important to me. They they taught me how to think. They gave me my lifelong friends, who are my basketball teammates, and, and I met the love of my life. And if I was able to do what I did, it's because I married Jimmy Gordon, and he's a saint, and the best dad ever. Um, I would cheat time. For the first 20 years of my career, I would use every minute that I wasn't a mom when they couldn't see that I wasn't there being a mom, going back mm-hmm. and doing work. So I was great at both. And it worked out for 19 years. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And then one day when my son was 14, it became apparent to me that uh, I couldn't both be as good a mom as I wanted to be and as good an employee. And, and I'm an in-or-out gal, so mm-hmm. I gave two weeks notice. Um, super easy decision to make, absolutely impossible decision to make because uh, I loved what I did. Uh, i and I resigned. i didn't I didn't take leave without pain and, mm. and walked away. never regretted it. Um, left to keep my son from being an idiot during the years, discovered my daughter, who I probably would have missed because she was just so balanced and easy. I think
0: she was just swung by. It makes me think a lot. I don't know if you've ever read this article, Sue, uh, in the Atlantic. I think it was two thousand and twelve, and Marie Slaughter wrote this article: her. "Why Women Can't Have It All."
1: Yeah. Right.
0: You have to make compromises. You can't have the family, the career, everything, and the compromises. So I guess, but see, I see it differently. Yeah. I see. Tell I more.
1: my my book title would be: "The Key to Happiness is Believing You Have Choice." Mm-hmm. The key to success is understanding there are consequences of those choices, and you don't control any of them. So. Mm-hmm. I've got to make the choice that I needed to leave. Mm-hmm. The reason I was successful, because I didn't ask the organization to give me what it could. And I didn't say, hey, I'd like to go take time with my family. Could you hold my job for you? My, for, hold my job for me? Could you do it? And And so because I see it so clearly, I think about the choice I'm making and that And if I make that choice, well, then that's the choice I want to be, and I'm going to be happy, Mm -hmm. and I don't regret the other things there. Um, uh, The other thing, I think we spend a lot of time talking about work-life balance, and if I, I think I have incredible work-life balance. People would laugh, given that I probably work 20, 22 hours a day. To me, work-life balance is, do you feel fulfilled at everything you do? Mm -hmm. And I have always when I left, they offered me jobs that were not meaningful. I would have hated that. I would have resented every day of not doing meaningful jobs. So what I encourage women to do is don't be afraid to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And you are going to not do so many more things in your life that you're going to do, that don't worry about what you're not doing for that time. Because I go away for eight years, and I come back to one of the greatest second acts of all time. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, make choices be happy in them, accept consequence, and move forward.
0: Yeah, believe in the the agency yep. that you have as well. Mm-hmm. Sue, I know you brought a wonderful memento to share with us, uh, something that represented a meaningful moment uh, in your career. Um, could you please first describe to us what you what you brought and why did you decide to share this with us? So I brought um, an old
1: pneumatic tube that used to carry messages around the the CIA before we had email. Um, There are a lot of things that are special about this to me. Number one, I have it because uh, a job I had as a director of support, and so when the tubes were being pulled out, there were a bunch of tubes, and and I was able to to take one. Uh, And the reason that's special to me is, man, I may have spent a career doing cyber and engineering and collection and information operations and a whole bunch of things but i love the only job i really hated leaving was support because the women and men that make the quiet the left mission happen so the fact that i have an artifact of that time but the other thing that i love about it is um this is the way we used to do mail (laughs) there are people that love the tubes there are people that hated email when it came in And it reminds me that how we used to do things is not the way we have to do things. Mm -hmm. And that even though you can love the past,
0: that would no longer be a relevant way to move things around. So to me, it's also emblematic of that. The ability to to evolve and innovate, right? I mean, it also makes me think about all the changes that are happening, right, in our society, whether it be emerging technologies, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and how how and what we're doing to adapt to all these different challenges. I mean, how do you foresee how these challenges are threatening maybe our national security? Are they? I mean, what are... Oh, it's a super disrupted world. Mm-hmm. We are we are at a moment that is
1: so different from others. There have been other disrupted times, mm-hmm. but this is surely one of them, that we're not gonna be able to draft off the work of our predecessors. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to create a new, and so it's this moment of kind of strategic uncertainty, whether mm-hmm. all this stuff that's swirling around, that we haven't yet figured out how it's gonna coalesce into either society mm-hmm. Or advance, I think, is disquieting. Uh, te- it is a technical world. It is a world where all the threats and opportunities go through information. It is a connected world. Uh, and that changes everything from geopolitics to the nature of intelligence to the nature of conflict. And so it's like you've got to be expert at technology. You've got to remember what intelligence is fundamentally providing. You've got to figure out how to do it differently. Every technology is available to everybody. So anything we advance is equally available. So it's a fraught time, but it's a great time. Like these moments are when we make the leaps. Uh, I probably only have one great worry about it is is that we're teetering on the edge of not believing in ourselves. And we shouldn't Mm -hmm. not believe in ourselves simply because... How we used to do it doesn't work anymore right. but i think yeah. that's a i think that's a worrisome trend and it's one that i think the national security community needs to help us understand
0: yeah. i love what you said uh, Sue. So strategic uncertainty i see it as a time of responsibility right well, for sure with all that's happening and how are we going to to move forward and how do we stay true to who we are i think mm-hmm. one of the most interesting
1: things is boy uh humans don't like not knowing and There are plenty of times when we have chosen to escalate government privilege in order to make us safer or feel better about ourselves. I just think this is a time where while we're figuring out, we still have to remember fundamentally
0: who we are and trust that. Absolutely. Sue, when you we talked a lot about uh, advice for for women and young girls Mm -hmm. right and you're involved with girls security an incredible organization i've got the the chance to mentor um young girls in in high school or in college they're incredible i mean the resilience talk about resilience uh what advice do you typically give them if they're interested in pursuing a career in policy and they see it as a as a space that's more male dominated or they don't feel like they belong there i mean what do you tell them uh, I I just think one, you're not going to have people aren't going to
1: have my career anymore I, I wouldn't encourage anyone to spend 35 years in the same organization just
0: go straight through it It's, it's just, not very common anymore right? It's not
1: very common and I'm just not sure it's the best way to mm-hmm. do it because there are things you need to learn on the outside but I will say man, participating in the government, particularly in national security it is a discipline of purpose and especially for the kids I see coming up now, uh, they are people of purpose. And I think we need to talk more about what it really is, that it is at its essence. That it isn't an ethnocentric, militaristic view. Mm-hmm. It's it's this time. Two, talk about this moment of uncertainty and their chance to make a difference. And then three, I think uh, you want to feel the weight of responsibility. This is a
0: great way to start. Yeah, Absolutely. Purpose. Uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? This uh, this opportunity, right? right? In it time does. of in time of uncertainty, and then finally responsibility. I mean, I can't emphasize enough your point, Sue, about purpose. I think communicating even more for government agencies to communicate even more, right? How much of an impact you can make, right? The the mission driven piece uh, of the work, mm-hmm. right? Um, Sue, to close, we like to ask our guests three questions every episode of Driving Impact, rapid fire style. Are you ready? I am. What are Gotta shake it out? <laughs> <laughs> what are three words you would use to describe your career? Uh, spectacular, surprising, and humbling. In your opinion, what does it mean to be American? Uh,
1: consent of the governed. You know, think about that. We, the people, have the power. We, the people, have both the opportunity and the
0: responsibility, and that's what it is to be an American. And what is giving you hope right now?
1: Oh, my gosh, everything, right? <laughs> no, seriously, I maybe it's being old enough to have seen things that I didn't think we would survive, right? I was six years old. We did duck and cover gr- drills because we were sure a thermonuclear war was going to be what ended us all. And I was there the day after 9-11 when we were sure we'd never look up in the sky without thinking that a plane was going to come in. And we had no idea how we were going to collect intelligence on these guys. And this is a different time, but we have been in these times before mm-hmm and i will say the fact that that women and men still choose to serve they don't serve the same way i mean you don't ha- national security is so much bigger tent now, right? It's it's being in academia, it's advancing technology, it's
0: doing policy. And some, yes, it's actually working in the government, but it doesn't have to be. Um, I, I think your point is very important. And, and being at CSA as a uh, defense of national security think Tank, that the definition of national security has evolved right. through time. Now we have conversations about climate change, about food security. Those mm-hmm. are all part of this uh, question of mm-hmm. national security. Yeah, right. economic security. So, oh, security. so, I, you know, I'm not naive
1: about how difficult these times are, but I look around
0: and every day, every person I meet gives me belief that we've got a way forward. Yeah. It has been such an honor, Sue, to talk to you. But most importantly, it's just been such a fun conversation. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to learn more about your, your story um, and your incredible career. It was a delight. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for joining our conversation with the Honorable Sue Gordon on how she became a visionary leader and an expert in national intelligence. Do you want to hear more exclusive stories from policy leaders? Be sure to follow Driving Impact on YouTube, Spotify or CSIS.org.